Hello, everyone. Welcome to the True Path Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. So today is session five of our study in Second Peter, and we're discussing chapter two, verses four through nine. So last week, we discussed the dangers of false teachers and the importance of staying grounded in God's word so that we don't fall for their lies and deceptions. God takes the subject of false teachers very seriously. We ended last week in verse 3 by discussing the judgment and punishment that will befall people who deliberately mislead and exploit others in the ways of God. Verse 3 ended by stating their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. And in today's passage, verses 4 through 9, Peter's going to give us three examples of the ways in which God judges wickedness, fallen angels, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. So once again, Peter's giving us Old Testament examples to explain a New Testament concept. That just as God did not allow wickedness to go unpunished then, he will not now. So let's read Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell, and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell to be kept for judgment. Now, Peter doesn't clearly indicate what the sins were that the angels committed. Many scholars believe this is a reference to when Satan rebelled against God and was banished from heaven, along with the angels loyal to him. Ezekiel 28.15, Isaiah 14.12-15, and Revelation 12.4 all speak to this. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. So it may be that some fallen angels are being held for judgment, while others are free to serve Satan as demons. Scripture isn't really clear, but I believe the point is that if God will even punish angels who are vastly superior to humans in strength and knowledge, then God will certainly punish people. All violators of God's law will be held accountable. God's standards for holiness will not be broken. But God also knew it was a standard that humans could never achieve. So God, in his great love for us, sent his son to bridge the gap. Jesus measured up to God's standard in our place because he knew we never could. So when we accept his free gift of salvation, we avoid the punishment and condemnation God has reserved for wickedness. And in verses 5 through 8, Peter gives us two more examples from the Old Testament to make his point. Just like we saw last week, 
when we compared all the prophecies of Christ made in the Old Testament and how they were fulfilled in the New Testament? Without the Old Testament, there would be no prophecy of Christ. The Old Testament and the New Testament depend on each other. God's covenant with humanity began with Adam, continued through Abraham, and is fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, we must regard all of Scripture as profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So in in verses 5 through 8, Peter gives us the examples of Noah and Lot. Now in verse 5, it says that God didn't spare the ungodly world, but brought the flood. Yet he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and his family. Noah was surrounded by wickedness, so much so that he and his wife, his three sons and their wives, were the only ones, the only ones who were righteous. Yet he continued to preach to the people. For 120 years he continued to let his light shine, while surrounded by total darkness. He warned the people over and over, yet they refused to listen, and therefore they were punished. But notice how God chose to protect Noah and his family. One scholar says God did not protect Noah and his family by isolating them from the world, but by enabling them to remain pure in the midst of corruption. And what did Jesus say in John 17, 15? My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And I think that's an important reminder, because Jesus also says in Matthew 24:37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So our world is only going to get worse before it gets better. And so our inclination might be to remove ourselves from it to detach ourselves, to disengage from the world. Because let's face it, it's hard to be exposed to constant pain, strife, angst, and selfishness. It's exhausting keeping your light shining when darkness is everywhere. I mean, Noah preached the way of God to the people day after day, month after month, year after year. Yet not one person responded to his message but he still remained faithful and continued following God because it wasn't about how productive he was, but how faithful he was to the task that God had entrusted to him. Adoniram Judson, one of the first foreign missionaries in American history and a pioneer in establishing a platform for foreign missions, said this, There is no success without sacrifice. If you succeed without sacrifice, It's because someone has suffered before you. If you sacrifice without success, it's because someone will succeed after. So we must remember that even if you feel like Noah, surrounded on all sides by sinfulness, remember what God did for him. He spared him in an incredibly miraculous way. And if he spared Noah, he will spare you. Verse 9 says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Another example of God's judgment and deliverance is with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, as you remember from Genesis 13, Lot was Abraham's nephew who went with Abraham when God called him to leave his country, his people, his father's household, and go to the land where God led him. 
Now, over time, both Abraham and Lot amassed such great wealth that the land couldn't support all their flocks and herds anymore. So they had to separate. Now, Abraham gave Lot the first choice of where he wanted to settle. And when Lot saw the beautiful, well-watered plains of Jordan, he chose to go there, knowing it was near Sodom and Gomorrah. And where did he pitch his tent? Near Sodom, whose men were known for being wicked and sinful. You see, he left the godly influence of his uncle and settled in a place surrounded by sinfulness. And what does 1 Corinthians 15.33 say? Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And this is exactly what happened in Genesis 19. Lot invited two angels who entered the city to stay at his house. And when the men of Sodom heard that they were there, they started banging on Lot's door and shouting for Lot to let them have his guests so that they could take advantage of them. And so what does Lot do? He offers to give them his daughters to abuse instead. Now, I need to make the point that in ancient times, proper hospitality dictated that a host must protect his guests under any circumstances. And the fact that they were angels might have weighed into his decision-making. But still, Lot allowed the culture surrounding him to influence him to the point of sacrificing his own daughters. Yet twice, Peter refers to him as righteous. Verses 6-8 through eight says, And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, as for that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So how can a person who has made such catastrophic errors in judgment be seen as righteous in God's eyes? Well, Lot is righteous not because of his goodness, but because of God's. His righteousness, like Abraham's, came from his faith in God. See Genesis 15, 6. You see, salvation isn't something that is earned through goodness, but given freely by God to those who believe. And if only good people who never made mistakes were held up as examples of righteousness in the Bible, well, where would that leave us? Our understanding of righteousness, I think, would be skewed. It would be viewed as something that could be earned, not received. So I think by holding up people like Lot as examples of righteousness, it helps us to grasp the truth that no one is perfect or capable of measuring up to God's standards, which is why Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice for us. But even though Lot made some terrible mistakes, he still was not irredeemable. And that's the point. No one is irredeemable. So we can never write ourselves or anyone else off. No one is ever too lost to be found. And God is an expert at finding what is lost. Because what did verses 7 and 8 say about Lot? He was distressed by the immorality of Sodom meaning from the Greek, exhausted with labor, oppressed. He was exhausted by the wickedness he saw and heard. It oppressed him. 
It also says he lived among them day after day and was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw. Tormented meaning tortured. So seeing and hearing the evil, wickedness, and immorality day after day caused Lot inner torture. So although he made some terrible lapses in judgment, he never accepted or became accustomed to the evil surrounding him. He never accepted it or approved of it. And I think Matthew Henry makes a really good point. He says, God doesn't account people just or unjust from one single act, but from their general course of life. And aren't we glad of that? I mean, can you imagine if we were only judged by the worst single action of our lives? If we were only known by our worst parts, defined by our mistakes? I mean, if that was the case, then Abraham, he would only be a liar. Moses, he would only be seen as a murderer. David would only be an adulterer. Paul, a persecutor. And Peter, a denier. But that is not how God saw them. And that isn't how he sees you. God doesn't see the worst in his children, but the best. And because of that, these men overcame their worst parts and through God's grace and mercy allowed their best parts to shine through. Aren't we glad we serve a God who sees the best in us? And when those worst parts of us do come through, we also have a God who is ready and willing to forgive and forget and helps us back up and helps us back on the right track. May we be as willing to forgive others as God is to forgive us. Now, our passage closes by saying in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So God knows how. If you don't remember anything else that's been said today, please remember these four words. The Lord knows how. I think these might be the greatest four words you're going to hear all week. How am I going to get through this day? The Lord knows how. How is this ever going to work out? The Lord knows how. How can I overcome this? The Lord knows how. It's okay if you don't know how, because God does. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The King James Version, I believe, gives a a better rendering of this verse when it says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, which I think indicates the fact that trials are going to come to the godly. But God knows how to rescue them out of them. I mean, look at all the ways that he delivered. One by water, another by fire. God is never at a loss for the ways and means in which to rescue you. You may see no way out, but God always does. And you are never overlooked by him. I mean, if he can deliver someone like Lot and his family, then he will surely rescue you. And if he can pluck eight people like Noah and his family out of a multitude of sinners and rescue them, then he can surely rescue you. And here, I think, is where we see a full picture of God. He is both rescuer and judge. He knows how to rescue the godly, but also keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. 
the day of judgment being the great, great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Now, verse 9, I believe, refers back to verse 3, when it says, Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. In each situation discussed today, God was judged, even over angels. God is sovereign over all things. But God is also not arbitrary. He sits on his throne and judges the unrighteous, but he also has compassion on the godly, so much so that he rescues them. God has his hand on the affairs of the world, and he has his hand on the affairs of your life, and he will spare you, even if you are the only one. And that is going to be our challenge. To answer the question, do you truly believe that God has the ability to rescue you? And do you believe that he is willing to rescue you? Because if we are saved believers in Jesus, he has already rescued us from death to life. And what he began in you, he will continue to perfect until he comes again. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.